I should probably put a couple of disclaimers out there. One is, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I'm certainly not going to allow anyone else to do so. Probably not a misfix-it, but I do play one on TV. I only want to hear the good stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. I only want to hear the good stuff. Welcome to the Backstory Perspective. We're going to sit down and listen to a few stories. I appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with me today. I don't know a lot about Ray's story, but I want to thank you first and foremost for making yourself available to sit down with us. My pleasure. And I'm excited. So will you please reintroduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is uh, Dr. Ray Serziki. I am 46 years old. I live in Bloomington, Indiana. I grew up here, went to high school here. Um, It's kind of a local kid, even graduated from Indiana University. Um, It's my alma mater. Yes, mine too. (laughs) Go Hoosiers. Uh, And I am um, a algal molecular biologist, uh, a genetic engineer, uh, and a synthetic biologist. Okay. So those things somewhere in there is my expertise. And I have a lot of uh, also biotechnology expertise and fermentation and certain things, you know, microorganisms. Um, so that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a lot the more surface. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just talking that's the surface. That's just the intro. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so let's uh, where do you want to start, start exactly? Yeah, <laughs> so... I don't know a lot about this story, yes. and as most people that have listened to any of our podcasts, they know that I sit down without any background because I don't want to lead people very far. But you have walked in with a couple of books yes. that you have published work, and I want to talk about those. Okay. But first, before we go too far into those, because I started reading uh, basically the introduction, the and then I got super excited because I geeked out and I was nerding on talking about chemistry and biology, and that got me super excited. So let's talk about you graduated from the university, and I know that at some point you went overseas. Is this where... the? Um, part of this story starts? Because I know that there's a story before you get to Europe. Yes. Uh, So I guess I can start, if you want, why I even in Bloomington, Indiana. And that's because both my parents work at the university. Okay. And so they met uh, when they were working uh, in this laboratory together, who was the pioneers of the use of this organism that I work with uh, to the use to dissect it for photo, um, to understand photosynthesis. So my parents met in a laboratory in Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, my father was a um, visiting postdoc student from from Warsaw, and he didn't speak a lick of English. Okay, so from Poland, Warsaw. Mm-hmm. My, okay. my, my father is uh, actually immigrated here from. Poland in the 60s. 
Okay. And so he was there oh, wow. uh, on a temporary right. kind of postdoctoral uh, thing to learn more about how to apply genetics to algae uh, and dissect photosynthesis. And he decided to stay. <laughs> Not so legally, but he decided, yeah. <laughs> after meeting my mother, and my mother actually is, has, you know, knew him before he even spoke English. So my mother kind of spoke taught English to my father. I was going to ask if your mother had anything to do with him staying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly part of the reason, yeah. So uh, after they met, they got married uh, soon after, and he was um, naturalized. So there's a story there. I mean, my father's life story is fascinating uh, and sad, and, you know, it's more for him to tell. Sure. But he was in Warsaw and born in 1936. Oh, okay. Oh. Wow. All right. Okay. So it places him there for the majority of the war. And after. Yes. And my family, my family specifically was some of the first people taken from Poland to some of the concentration camps because they were social democratics. They were some of the people who were organizing maybe some of the resistance to um, Hitler's regimes. And so they were the first to be taken to um, Auschwitz, Okay, my grandfather. And the children, my father and his two, and his mother and the two were left in Warsaw uh, during most of the occupation. Was your so, grandfather a scientist as well? Um, no, he was a concert pianist. Interesting. Wonderful. So he actually was... That um, is a science of sort. It's a, I mean, like... <laughs> well, so. <laughs> little known fact, he knew the guy who wrote the piano, the movie that you might have oh. seen. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. He actually was contemporaries with him. They went to school together. Okay. And so his story is actually very much, my grandfather's story very much parallels with that story because they were actually... I've never seen it. My father said he won't go see it just too close to home and yeah. that yeah. Um, yeah. so a little bit that's just you know that's where he came from he was okay. actually escaping um the soviets right at the time yeah and his mother told him to stay from what i understand uh he defected <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there's a long he story. Was, he was offered a different opportunity that sounded a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, also I think he, I mean, fell, he here. fell in love with the work too, because this was groundbreaking stuff at the time. They were dissecting how photosynthesis functions at the genetic level. Soon after we discovered actual DNA, uh, so they were starting to pick apart genetically how photosynthesis works, which. I'm trying to remember back in my science biology days and how impressed I was that medicine as it is today was not really created until the 50s. And I remember just being mind blown at that point in my studies. I was just like, I, I couldn't comprehend that penicillin and and those those types of medicines really did not become popular until the 1950s and here we are well gosh now it's 70 years later I got old okay so well you uh, weren't alive then <laughs> no I was not alive but I think back to how groundbreaking that was but Medicine existed long before we had synthetic pharmaceuticals and we were using these different things. 
but photosynthesis had to have really been a huge part of that breakthrough and really understanding because of the nature of how we developed modern medicine. In the work that my professor did, uh, that I work for in Geneva, which I'll get to, and the work that I do, and the work that my father did, and all these people that were just people I knew uh, as a kid because they were in that community, their work has done probably most underreported, most important thing to really delineate molecularly how photosynthesis works. Because one of those reactions, the one that uh, uses water and and uses that for energy, is perhaps the most important chemical reaction that life ever developed. Because it brought us oxygen. Right. Uh, it It feeds every one of us listening out there. There's no way you live on this planet without... Photosynthesis photos. happening everywhere. Food. We are dependent upon yeah. plants. And so and there's a symbiotic relationship, of course, but they are the ones who... That reaction is probably the most un, unheralded understanding of the scientific world that we have today because we, can, we don't understand everything about it. But the fact that we do understand it explains everything we see in front of you. It's all because some light was captured at some point by an algae or microorganism or a plant or a tree and converted into sugars. And that's where we step in because we are just at the top of that pyramid. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, that to me is what I work on. And that's okay. why I have a lot of passion for that part of like photosynthesis. And that's where he met my, my mother. So, and it's not a funny, it's a funny little, like, you know, that's their um, love. That's, that's their love story. Yep. And that's right. they've carried it, their love story into your passion. True. And yeah. now here we are sitting down many years later after a, <laughs> after a lot of studying and a lot of learning. And now I want to hear sure. about some of your um, patents and inventions. Sure, and, of course. And then we'll, I think we'll go into Geneva. Okay. So the first thing was when I was working in Geneva, the f- I was handed a project. and that How'd worked. you end up in Geneva? Hold okay, on. So let's take a step back. <laughs> Hold on. So I graduated from Indiana University okay. and I moved out to San Francisco. And I did that without finding a job. I just decided that I was going to I was going to live in a big city and enjoy my life after having worked so hard to get a degree. And everyone knows that um, this, you know, I just wanted to have some fun. And so I found a job and I was luckily I was able to um, get an interview at Stanford University uh, where they were beginning to uh, sequence entire genomes of various organisms. So they there was a center called the Stanford Genome Technology Center that had started to, um, for the very first time, try to sequence an entire genome. And so they um, had done that with yeast uh, initially. Just for context, uh, around what time? This was 1997. Okay. So before, mostly before... <laughs> Yeah, uh, this was considered to be like nowadays. It's quite simple to sequence an entire genome. It costs a couple thousand dollars. I might be wrong still, but you might be able. Each and every one of us could get that done if we yeah. wanted. But then, doing the very, it's millions and millions and millions of individual um, A B A C T G 
segments that you have to read individually um, over time. And they were starting, the work that I did there was starting to both, um, let's, um, that's the word, they were using robots and starting to upscale up and do high throughput, is what we call it, high okay. throughput sequencing. So we were, uh, my, my daily job would be to go in and uh, run about, you know, thousands of sequence reactions, uh, and then they would run those out, and then I would, you know, we'd read out those sequence reactions, and those would all get put into a giant bucket, and eventually we'd put them all together, and, and you got a genome sequence. So as I was leaving uh, from that job, I we were publishing some of the first eukaryotic genomes ever um, to be sequenced. And so one of them was Candida albicans, and that was the project I was working with uh, there. And so Candida is a um, important pathogen for humans because it causes yeast infections and it causes, uh, can, uh, can, I think it's called Candida, can, candidiosis. Candiosis. It's basically if you're, you know, if you have a weakened immune system, uh, candida can be a real killer. And so they were interested in seeking. <laughs> yes. So that was, maybe I should look into these candidas. Candida I don't know if anybody out there knows, right. but um, no, this is very common. I, mean, I think most of the tools we have to combat them are. Um, just fungicides. So it's a fungus that can grow in our body. If, anybody's body if we don't, if it doesn't, if we can't, if you don't stop it. Uh, so that was the project that I worked on. And going back to Harvard, my father had met a young scientist who was in the lab in Harvard to um, study photosynthesis. And his name was Jean de Rocher. And Jean, he showed Jean how to do some stuff and they became friends and he helped him on his on his thesis project, and Jean graduated and went back to Geneva, where he was from, and um, cut to me sitting at Stanford. Okay. How many other years later, uh, I, he, uh, I think I inquired, and he said, well, we have a thesis program here at the University of Geneva. If you want to apply, we'll see where it goes. And um, so I basically applied. So, I mean, for my father to have sort of maybe helped Jean back then, yep. and then I arrive in Geneva after many, many years, and you can see how small of a community it is. So he wanted me to study photosynthesis, and I was doing really high-end work in California at the time, and so they just grabbed me up, and I was more than happy to leave because I grew up with graduate students here in the stateside, and I knew what kind of life that was. Right, and I yeah. was under no impression <laughs> that I, I wouldn't be treated the same way. And so I, I actually left in, um, 19, in 2000 and, and arrived in October 2000 in Geneva uh, with a couple suitcases and... Uh, um, not really knowing how to speak the language quite yet, um, and so uh, and started doing my thesis work there. So that was the sh shorter version of that story. So I came okay. from this genome center, right, uh, where we were sequencing genomes for like um, you know, f like what we later but on did with the human genome. We sequenced uh, that center was actually involved in the human genome as I was leaving the center as well. So, so this, the Stanford Center, mm -hmm. whatever its fancy name is. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's name, uh, it was run by a guy named Dr. Ron Davis. Okay. He was a 
those of you who might be geeks uh, will know Ron Davis's work. And thank you for including people because sometimes, <laughs> yeah. um, especially when you do get community members, they are interested. Yes. And you were studying this type of yeast and then this type of fungus. Correct. Initially. Yeah, I was the, doing and, a lot of the just grunt work of doing the like thousands of individual sequence reactions uh, every day. Just and by the time you're every, leaving, yes, they're now sequencing human yes. genomes. Yes. Which had not been done to that extent yes. previously. Well, what happened was Craig Venner happened. It's a guy who came in and said in the early 2000s, I'm going to sequence the entire genome uh, of humans, and uh, and then they were worried he was going to patent every piece of sequence that he he just kind of did, and he was going to do the same kind of sequencing that we were doing at Stanford, which is called shotgun sequencing. It's basically when you throw it all into a giant pool and you, you and you just mix it all up, and you take individual reads of 500 bases or so and try to put all that together. So he was going to do that, and that was an exception to what the Human Genome Project was, was doing, which was meticulously going region by region by region by region uh, and putting together an exact picture of what that region looked like sequentially. Okay. And he was going to turn over the whole, he was going to upend all of that because he was just going to come in and do it fast and cheap and and and, and sort of like um, the idea was he was they were going to kind of scoop get the scoop on the government project which was a global project okay and so they kicked into gear and put, I watched it they put money a lot of money into just taking a, like just putting it into overdrive for the human genome project cuz I was there on the ground when those decisions like they were the, announcements were being made about uh so yes they that was not happening there when i was when you arrived there when yes. you arrived this was not happening <laughs> no. by the time you left we have changed the course of science for humans i would say yeah i mean 100 percent. there's not sure medical science yeah it, yeah the work we did, if you want to go and dig into the genome sequence, uh, because Stanford did the work, we published the paper, you have to cite the work that we did because we're the ones who generated the data. And so everyone who goes in there and does a query into the database, that database exists because of the thousands of sequence reactions that I did every yeah, day. Yeah, and As, I really wanted to kind of pull on that because sure. it's it's such a big piece of how we view medicine um, today. And then, I mean, it even goes into the project that you and I were on. Mm -hmm. um, the there was, yeah, there mm -hmm. was, uh, what a lot of people don't know about our project is that they pulled a lot of people who had strong backgrounds in science. Mm -hmm. They pulled people mm -hmm. who had really strong backgrounds in medicine. They pulled people and it, the pool of people was the breadth was really wide, but the knowledge and the intelligence ran super deep. Mm -hmm. And it was a, this is a very odd thing for all of these types of people to be together on this type of a project. But had you not done back in the 90s, mm -hmm. we would have never been in 
an environment that we were able to figure out what was going on with COVID, yep. Um, yep. how it was spreading and at the rate that it was spreading and how to truly sequence that. And then to realize that it wasn't a lung disease, but a blood um, virus that it was attacking mm-hmm. the blood system and, and the the way that it was attacking or does attack is that the reason why people have a hard time breathing is really because the oxi- oxygenation Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, taking place in the different capillaries, um, that exchange was not happening fluidly. So then that would cause fluid on the lungs and it would cause respiratory distress and those types of things. But had he not done mm-hmm. to start that, we would not be able to do uh, what we are for this pandemic and, and truly being able so to true. getting it to stop or to slow the fuck down. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can take it a step further than that. Uh, I'm sure you can. To, bring it back to my, <laughs> my father, okay? So oh. in 19, sometime in the 90s, he's flying out to a conference in San Diego. And um, the seas goes, he, he used to work on old, old Volkswagens when he lived in Europe. Apparently, so he was mm. a mechanic. He's um, for working on old Volkswagens, and he was thinking about turbos. Okay, and turbos are a certain way to improve. You know, everyone knows turbos. I won't geek out about that, but he understood how they worked. They do a um, nebulization of the gas so that it has a higher rate of more energy. So anyway, burn rate. he thought about that. And then he thought about something, how we shear DNA. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I were to just take DNA out of a cell of your body, I need to figure out a way if I'm going to sequence it, that I make every part of that the same size molecule. They have okay. to have no ends that are sort of favored. Okay, okay, so sir, the way we had been doing it before was through sonication, which was like sound waves, mm-hmm. uh, enzymatic degradation, which is like sequence-specific targeting of certain pieces of DNA, and a few other ways. Uh, but he decided that he was going to produce this um, shearing effect using the concept of a nebulizer and or a actual turbo engine uh and so what he developed holy shit yes <laughs> okay yes. everybody that's not sitting in this room my mind was just fucking blown yeah and you should have seen the look on her face <laughs> my face does not lie and it does not hide um so it, you know if i'm mad at you you know if i'm happy with you <laughs> you know it just i don't have that that hiding face but i understand exactly now that you are explaining it step by step but yeah how that happens because it happened at a higher rate and with almost higher oxygen. You, you mean to try and say oxygenation? Well, it was a but way the, to make sure every end of that DNA was identical. And so if you're going to sequence a genome, you don't want parts that are favored because you won't get information from that part. Because we need ends. We need little ends to do the sequencing. And so that little device... Has, was used by Craig Ventner to try to do his shotgun sequencing of the human genome. Okay. And because of it, a lot of people have picked it up, and it was actually owned by Indiana University, patented, and da-da-da-da-da. And so they forced Ventner to, like, 
acknowledged that he was using my father's technology to prepare the DNA ends so he could shotgun sequence the, his project, his million dollar project, $200 million is called Solera. Uh, was the project he was doing. And that was the project that. that kicked everything into gear at my genome institute because they realized that he might be able to do this. <laughs> and the government was like, mm. uh, so he, my father, all this genome sequencing that goes around the world needs the ends prepared identically so that it can be done very rapidly nowadays. So, okay. And you cannot do that without nebulizing it. And you don't get nebulization unless my father was on that plane and figured out that you could nebulize DNA and not just DNA, you can use it to break uh, yeast cells, for instance. So if you wanted to, you could speed up beer and wine production by nebulizing the matter that comes from the, I'm not sure about fermentation, but it was thought of you could use it for other purposes as well. But it worked very well for DNA because there was no other tool in our toolkit to do this. I have goosebumps. (laughs) This is such my jam, you guys. I'm totally geeking the fuck out (laughs) because I will sit there and I will ask my partner all kinds of existential questions about random stuff and usually super sciencey. And he's a pretty, he loves it. Yeah, he's pretty intelligent. He's extremely intelligent, not pretty intelligent. He's very intelligent. But I think about shit. that nobody should be thinking about, especially with my lack of knowledge. I mean, I come up with the most bizarre things. So now to have some of my actual questions answered abstractly, I'm totally so fucking excited (laughs) about all of this. So let's go deep. Let's go. I'm excited about this, Ray. You have no idea. Um, You thought that I might be excited, but like, this is my jam. So you're going to answer a bunch of questions. All right, cool. And I am living for it. So now we have established that your background, your family's background has this huge, huge impact. Does your father have a patent on this particular type or as as the inventor? Yeah, he invented it. So the university owns rights. Okay. Right. That's so it was same under, as me when yeah. I, so he was he was working for the university mm-hmm. when he okay yep yeah and so that yeah it's like it was called a nebulizer uh, but the funny thing is that he taught me how to use it and I took his class at IU when I was there uh, molecular biology uh, laboratory and he still teaches that today and he'll teach you how to use one and but he won't go get the one that his company or the that he started he'll tell you to go to the drugstore and get the pre-sterilized $1 nebulizers that people use to breathe better. And so he taught all his students this. And so instead of making a lot of money off of it, because instead you would have to buy a $3,000 device that gave you a lot of control over every aspect of anything you wanted to do with it, you use this little one that was sufficient. So he spent years teaching people how to use uh, his technology, and they started ending up in kits. Mm-hmm. So like these scientific kits, prepare the DNA ends with the nebulizer, and they give you the nebulizer. Well, the nebulizer was owned by a university for that purpose. And so the university has come is, around and enforced and their patent 
all over the world because of that. And so they, we joke in my family that it was my father who built the new business building. <laughs> the only tech yeah. transfer that ever came out of that was they're suing people for infringing on their patent that he actually was the one who created. And so uh, I think I'm going to put a petition out there and say you should probably name it after that. <laughs> At least a little plaque there, because from what I understand, he never really made any money from the invention. And this leads to something that you mentioned prior to uh, us recording that that scientists just want people to read their stuff. Yeah. They, you know, you want to spread the knowledge. You want people to know how these things work. That's and, right. and the idea of wanting to disseminate knowledge versus the idea of intellectual property is, yeah. is fascinating to me, you know, because, because it is people like you who, who just want the knowledge who are doing the work yep. that then makes the university all the money. That's right. Exactly <laughs> right. And you never know where that next invention will be coming from. And that's why basic research is extremely important. We shouldn't turn our backs on that because my this thing we'll talk about here in a minute would not have been possible without the basic research. I created, it took so much from basic research to create applied research to do it for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. I would not have been able to do that in any way uh, without just wanting to know how it works uh, at the heart of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we want tools for our toolkits. That's the best I can describe. Yeah, it. Like if you, here's absolutely. a new power tool. You can use it. It's better than the last one. It has a diamond tip. Right. Yeah. You know? So that's where we're at. Uh, we get a, taken advantage for for that reason, and we also probably consider naive. And 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 I think yeah. that's my story fits very well with that <laughs> uh, for that. Okay. And it's, it, it's, it's similar. It's, it's a creative thing. It's similar to, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it's very similar. Like, I just want to, I just want to create things yes. and, and have people enjoy them, yes. you know, and disseminate that knowledge. Yes. <laughs> and then um, that feeling, that exposure, that experience. Know, yeah. But then, but then, you know, you have, the business people get their get their claws in it, and and they always take, show up after the fact. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Never, because they're never there at the moment of creation. Yeah, they realize that <laughs> that people want or need yes. this, and and that they can profit right. off of it. And they don't do anything. No, just remember that, ladies and gentlemen. They actually are just there pushing to paper. assist people for the most part. That's why it's called management. Yes. <laughs> so that being all of that being said. How much do you think having your dad as a scientist in this similar field yes. played into your, not just your passion, but your wanting to, your, your motivation to, to figure this out? Sure. Um, well, I have memories. I grew up in the biology building here. In, I can, I have memories Going back I, for as long as for yeah, as long as you can remember. Memories of my parents talking science over the dinner table, which at the time sounded like a bunch of jargon. You know, right. <laughs> As scientists together can sound like they're speaking another language. Uh, and so, for the most part, I was weird for this. I'd not say per se because, um, but you know, at the age of eleven, I was reading 
DNA sequences in my father's lab. Oh, that's awesome. Because yeah, like, I guess okay, he wanted me to have a again. summer job. And so yeah. I was hanging around. And so I have memories of looking at audio, audio radiographs of okay. DNA sequences. Yeah, because that's how they would have had to have. And him asking me, is this a double C or is this a three C's or is this a GGG? Uh, trying to <laughs> determine what the sequence was because at that time it was done all by eye. Uh, now it's done by computers. Uh, so, I mean, that was wow. my summer okay. as an 11-year-old, I would okay. say. Okay. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, maybe I was supposed to do this because my sixth, I'm the sixth generation PhD in my family. Holy my shit. My Zikis go back uh, <laughs> that many generations and we're always agricultural something or other. Uh, so yeah, so this is in your DNA. I would literally. say yeah. <laughs> my the joke was I had you know like who's the next PhD in the family? Am I in the last one? And no one really expected me to do it. Um, my brother was also a biologist, and he actually shares the namesake of all the PhDs that came before him, which was Stefan. Okay. And so I'm Raymond, and that's not the. Um, that's so, not the lineage. That's no. not the sixth generation lineage, <laughs> right. but you still have the PhD. You well, still have that so, doctor. Is, is Stefan a PhD? My as father, well? no, my, my brother is not. He actually likes computers more than biology. Okay. So he lives in Paris, um, does a lot of stuff with computers, um, but you know, he knows biology as well. Um, so yeah, I went through, I went on with the family business. Okay. Yeah. Because sure. I mean, yeah. there's. I, I didn't know it was going to be that deep when I asked yeah. the question. Like, <laughs> no. I'm, that's pretty typical yeah. that I'm like, whoa, hold on. All right. So, it, <laughs> and now I have to go back to is the entire family from Poland no. until you? No. Okay. My mother is from Cleveland, Ohio. She grew up in Westlake, uh, in Cleveland. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she was, yeah. She, all of the generations on your father's side, mm-hmm. are they all Polish? Um, or my from Europe? Maternal, my paternal it grandmother have been Poland then. Like. <laughs> has Austrian roots. Okay. And, okay. Which was one of the reasons that when the SS showed up to the house, that she was able to have them not take the kids because they had blonde hair and she spoke Austrian, German. Uh. So, I mean, my family's history is kind of like, that's my, that's a lot of, um, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I have more, my father... Over like the said, years, it's your I've filled story. in a lot of stuff. He's filled in mainly to me. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I didn't, when I initially asked that question, yeah. that that was definitely not the response <laughs> that I thought that I was getting. I didn't really have, you know, any yeah. real parameters or boundaries around what was going to happen, but definitely... Um, yeah, I, I would have to say that you were probably Same meant business. to do yes. this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so now we've we've laid down some pretty technical um, information, but we've kind of stuck to the surface mm-hmm. from my aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you have now gone to Switzerland, yes, um, and. You're not. You don't speak the language, right? 
fluently, well, but you do now because I can hear it. Yes. <laughs> so well, um, I spent a year there when my father was on in sabbatical in the lab of Jean David Rocher. So I actually okay. knew Jean David way before I entered his lab. He was he taught me how to ski. Uh, in his chalet in, in the Alps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I know. <laughs> um, a little Mont Blanc for the right, weekend. Exactly. Uh, Verbier. <laughs> even more shishi now. Yeah, that is even more shishi. And I thought I was going real shishi right. on that. Um, nope. So, yeah, I mean, I knew <laughs> I had gone to a French speaking school there in this little town. And I had, at First, again, not knowing the language, but by the end of my time there, I was fairly fluent. And so when I went back there, I had forgotten everything. But within a year, I was starting to figure out how to understand it again. So, yeah, I, I did not know the language. I show up there October 2000, and I sit down with Jean David, my professor, and he hands me this project. And that's the one that ended your, up being your the thesis. thesis. So okay. the thing that I'm going to describe yep. all comes from my thesis. So it all starts in 2000. You mm-hmm. arrive in Geneva. That's you're going to do your doctorate work. Yep. Yep. So you're working on your post-secondary degree, and you know that it's going to be in photosynthesis yep. and genetics. Algae. Mm-hmm. And yep. algae. Yep. Okay. And so claiming a monas for sure. Like okay. second generation clammy algal molecular biologist. Uh, so, yes. Okay. I, they don't, they assigned me right away to my lab. He picked me <laughs> uh, specifically and probably yeah, told the department <laughs> that this is, you know. This one's mine. This is mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get this one. <laughs> uh, so, in essence, that's that's what happened. And so, he, he gives me this very advanced project, which involves doing something that no one had done in algae up to that point, which was successive genetic manipulations of both the chloroplast, which has its own genome, and the nucleus, which of course has its own genome. And so together doing those two things, what we were going to do is be able to control gene expression in the chloroplast from the nucleus. So the way the way it was described to me when I sat down to do it Go ahead. So you're taking this nucleus yep. and you're telling yep. this chloroplast to behave in a particular way That's right. because the the neuroblast is or not the neuroblast the um, nucleus mm-hmm. is now talking Always. to right but yeah. now you're going to tell it what to say right okay you understood uh, so basically. The way it works is that can go way back. So when a chloroplast first became a chloroplast is when some microorganisms maybe swallowed another microorganism. One microorganism was a photosynthetic bacteria, ancient form, and the other one maybe just bacteria-like. But they eventually, one became supreme to the other. So the chloroplast became sort of a organelle rather than its own thinking thing and it sent most of what it did to the nucleus and the nucleus is in control of everything the chloroplast does even though it's an ancient relic was its own it was its own microorganism so we know this is how it works because it has its own genome Mm -hmm. that looks a lot more like a like a bacteria than it does something uh, like a eukaryotic 
Um, okay. So the nucleus and the chloroplasts are distinct genetic compartments with their own lineages. And the nucleus does a lot of the thinking <laughs> for the chloroplast. And the chloroplast does all the making right. for the cell. And so there was the, my original professor was studying the relationship between how that was occurring. And there's something like 3,000 genes involved in the chloroplast, uh, regulating the chloroplast from the nuclear compartment. And most of those were just shuttled to some point out of the chloroplast and inserted into the nucleus of the gene. Of, the, of this organism. And so what we were studying was how, what this relationship was. And so they kept finding mutants that had no chloroplast function, but they were doing things, nuclear problems. So what it would be is like this piece of the chloroplast DNA doesn't work anymore, but it's not because it's not there, it's because this gene isn't there anymore. And this gene stabilizes that gene in the chloroplast. And so what he was working on was figuring out how that relationship worked. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, like, I'm following it. Okay. Um, let me, I know. Let I'm me trying to be vague. But yeah, I'm let not, me regurgitate this sure, back, of course. though. <laughs> so my, the brain is now giving basically facial expressions to... The other part, but all of a sudden now we can't smile. Mm-hmm. But why aren't we smiling? That's right. So did we have a stroke? Did it stop? <laughs> right. I mean, why are these pieces not That's communicating not yep. with each other? So why is the smile not happening? Right. But this is like happening on this like teeny tiny. Mm. I mean, more than microscopic right. level. Like I don't even. Okay. But he had managed to figure out how this was going on. Okay, so he understood that he was one of the leading laboratories in, in finding out how these things were working. And so he took, synthesized that understanding and handed me this project. Okay, and this project was simply to make sure um, that if I wanted to switch a gene on in the chloroplast, on or off, we could do it. There was no other way to do it up to this point. And so... We couldn't turn off certain genes that we wanted to study. And we couldn't turn them off, and so we therefore needed a new way to dissect them. And that was what he was trying to do with the project. And so the whole thing about what we do to understand photosynthesis and from the beginning back in Harvard, they were just making mutations and then finding out what that gene that was mutated looked like. Okay. How did it work? And so we reached the end of that story, and this was where I start picking up. We reached the point in time which we couldn't dissect it any further, and we needed a new tool in our toolkit, and that's what he handed me. Like a new way to dissect genes that was impervious to our former way of doing it. Uh, and so he tasked me with that. And it had nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> it had only thing to do with uh, more research, more like understanding. Like there's a few things we don't understand about the genome of this chloroplast. And we want to know what those things are doing. And there's no way we can actually dissect them. And so he came up with this new way with based on the, what we had already learned about the relationship between the nucleus and the chloroplast in this organism. So he had done 20 years of different work on figuring out like how it worked. And then he gave me this project 
and it was actually broken down into three different projects, three different ways to try to do the same thing. And that's where I started uh, the, my thesis project. And it was a, the guy who was tr helping me out in the laboratory, uh, his name was Carl, who was upset because he didn't think it was a project that I, as a graduate student, probably should have been tasked with because it's risky. But, uh, but I did it anyway. And, and, <laughs> Risk taker, I guess. And <laughs> obviously, and I, I, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name, but, yeah. but the, the head of this project mm -hmm. um, knew Dr. you. Dr. Roche. Mm -hmm. Dr. Roche knew mm -hmm. you. Yes, from and, way back. And, and obviously knew you were capable of it. Yes. Um, or hoped I, like hell because I mean, like, like hell. this dude is already, right. you know, his brain power is like, I've tried this so many ways. Can um, you look at it different? But also, right. and, and, and this is interesting because normally um, I, when we're doing these things, I'm the more practical analytical person yeah. and, and Coco is the, is the more touchy feely, mm -hmm. but I'm also fascinated about how this is, Yours and your parents' yes. life work. That's, that's it, and that—that's amazing to me. That that it's, yes, you know that that he handpicked you. Yes, <laughs> to one of your father's contemporaries yes. handpicked you to continue the work that they started together. It's just amazing. Yes, I, I mean. It, yeah, again, I, I geek, this is, I told you, this was my total geek out moment. And I don't know that you really knew that I was going to geek out. And I was like, oh, you know, sure. Well, I think it's, it's, it's kind of uh, sometimes maybe a, a cliche to say I stand on the shoulders of giants. But I do believe that in many cases that, you know, that's the oh, case. Oh, I can here, see so. where that would totally be applicable in this particular conversation and this life work, these, I mean, these pieces, I mean, you've spent your entire life From the time you were an egg. Yeah, like literally, <laughs> truly. It's actually true. Like, I mean, whether it's osmosis or, you know, what's, what is it, nature versus nurture, I think you, you, there's a strong proponent for both. Yeah, I mean, yeah. um the you had mentioned earlier about your grandfather being mm -hmm. a concert pianist and i mm -hmm. said you said he wasn't a scientist and i immediately go to music as as a form of science because it's sound waves and, mm -hmm. and it evokes emotion and and those types of things so you have already hit a roadblock <laughs> when you have arrived because you're too young to do this you don't have enough experience yeah. but at this point you really have 20 plus years of experience because you've been hearing it yes. and you've heard other people continuously throughout all of this time looking at these from this perspective and then from that perspective and now we have this information so mm -hmm. this perspective changes and, and and i think i think approaching it first and foremost when you were a child you know, uh, learning about genomes and, and things like that, you you have a unique and different perspective. Sure. It yeah. wouldn't have been the same as the other students. Is is I think that that's what I really want to drive home here, is that your experience was no others. So, 
you have this breadth and depth of knowledge that other people don't have the time to learn because you've spent 20 years learning this and, and listening to it and you have official training, but you also have unofficial training. And that's, that's where this really kind of crosses or takes a, takes a turn. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, and I wonder if that didn't, uh, help with the applied knowledge as well. Cause it, cause it was just, I mean, it's almost second nature to you, right? I mean, well, you know, what's interesting is I never intended on being an applied scientist, but my work is exclusively applied. I, and in fact, if you ask me today, way more interested in applied science than doing basic research. Uh, and so like they, my, f- the people that raised me and also my, my uncle, uh, Jean, it's what I used to call him. He, he, uh, he, he was applied. He wasn't applied. It was absolute basic research. But for me, my more comfortable with trying to take that basic research and apply it to problems that we have today. And that I think I've done a little bit of that already with some of the work that I've done. So we'll get into that. When they present to you what they want you to do, Mm -hmm. are you excited? Sure. Because I didn't know anything about it. I was green at that point. So like I was basically naive to any of this, like, like you today would be hearing okay. it for the first time. So okay. it was all very exciting to know how that they had dissected these weight and understanding of the photosynthesis and that they wanted me to just take that next step forward and, and just comp- um, complete the dissection. Okay. Okay. Cause we had like, there's something like 80 different genes in the chloroplast of the organism that I work in. And we knew what 76 of them did. And the other four were bizarre and we didn't know what they did. And that's what they were trying to, to dissect with what I had originally been given. Okay. It's purely scientists, purely, uh, you know, trying to get a new tool in our toolkit. And it could be used in more, you know, than just one application. Uh, so, but that, it blossomed even from that um, once I got going. Um, so that yeah. was the b- beginning of the project. So he handed and this to me. Just uh, real quick for, for the, for the non-science geeks, mm-hmm. what, what you're, t- what you're talking about in terms of the, the basic research is you're, you're look and the, and the tools mm-hmm. you're looking for the knowledge and the understanding mm-hmm. for its own sake. That's it. Just, just to know and understand yep. what this thing is. That's it. And then the applied, like you said, is Even applying later. it to problems, issues, yep. you know, making solutions for, for real world. For real world, yeah. Yeah. Precisely. That is precisely correct. And that's actually how it went down. 